This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Sociology. Uh, I am your host, Michael Johnston, and um, this is a new this is New Books in Sociology, a channel on New Books Network. Today, I have Dr. Renee Almeling, who is a sociology at Yale University with research and teaching interests in gender and medicine. She uses a range of qualitative and historical quantitative methods. She examines questions about how biological bodies and cultural norms interact to influence scientific knowledge medical markets, and individual experiences. It's a pleasure to have Dr. Ameling on the show today. Thank, thank you for you so, joining me. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Looking forward to it. All right. Dr. Ameling uh, is the author of Sex Cells, an award-winning book that offers an inside look at the American market for egg donors and sperm donors. But today we have her on the show to discuss her newest book, Gynecology, The Missing Science of Men's Reproductive Health, which was published by University of California Press, this August 2020. In this book, she argues that the historical lack of biomedical attention to men's reproductive health has a profound implication uh, for contemporary reproductive politics. Uh, And again, thank you for for joining me on this show, Dr. Emeling. Uh, How did you become interested in men's reproductive health in in this book? Yeah, well, yeah, this book is, um, you know, really started out with questions about medical specialties and sort of looking around at the landscape of what does medicine focus on when it comes to reproductive health. And the fact that there's this sort of large specialty of OBGYN for women, uh, there are public health recommendations that women be screened on a regular basis, go have their reproductive organs checked out. There's public health campaigns about uh, what women should eat and do uh, during pregnancy. And it just, you know, there was sort of a, a, a gap there that I had begun to notice over my years of doing research on reproduction um, and really just wondered, you know, well, was there ever any sort of attention to men's reproductive health when it came to, you know, medical specialties? And so that sort of was where I started. I, I did originally kind of think that I wanted to look at all of medical specialization, sort of asking this question of, you know, medicine has carved up the body in such a way where different specialties um, focus on different parts of the body and trying to trace how that happened and which which parts of the body got claimed and which parts didn't. Um, and I really sort of ended up deciding to start with the parts that I knew about, which were the reproductive parts, um, given my prior research on egg and sperm donation, and just ended up finding more than a book's worth of material to write about in terms of I'm thinking about how we as a society um, do or don't pay attention to men's reproductive health. And, and throughout history, much of history, um, even maybe even continuing in today, men's reproductive health has been ignored. Is, is that true? 
Yeah, well, you know, so I did, I, I was trained in sociology, and so I had sort of a passing understanding of what it meant to do historical research. But it was clear to me that this question of how did we get to this point where we spend so little time on men's reproductive health needed a historical uh, perspective. And so um, here at Yale, we're very fortunate to have a really wonderful program in the history of science and medicine. And I went to some of my colleagues in that department and said, okay, well, if I were going to try to figure out, um, you know, looking back to the middle of the 19th century, when the medical profession started to specialize, um, try to figure out, you know, has there been attention to men's reproduction? When? How? Who was paying attention? Why were they paying attention? And so they really tutored me. I kind of joke that I have about a master's degree worth of um, historical training. They really tutored me in sort of how to approach that question. The medical history librarian was fantastic. And so I sort of started poking around in the late 19th century and found that, in fact, there had been an attempt to create a medical specialty that would focus on men's reproductive bodies. Um, it was called andrology. And it really just didn't even take off. It sort of was stopped in its tracks in the first couple of years of existing um, because the physicians who wanted to create it were ridiculed for the idea that they were trying to form a specialty around men's reproductive bodies. Um, and the ridicule is really rooted in the fact that men's reproductive health at that time was really all about venereal disease. Uh, syphilis and gonorrhea were rampant. There were not good cures. And along came a group of physicians that said, well, we have OB, you know, we have obstetrics, we have gynecology, GYN. Um, we need a parallel specialty for men's reproductive health. And that attempt to form it was really tied up with sort of morality and masculinity of the time and never even launched, right? So it's sort of a, a not even a failed specialty. It's a specialty that that didn't launch. Excellent. And is that at the point where uh, there were some, some, some significant figures like uh, Keyes and Corner and then later... Uh, Sipka in the study of andrology, and I could be um, mispronouncing uh, the last <laughs> character's uh, last name, but uh, Keys and Corners, could you talk about uh, Corner as uh, significant people in the study of andrology? Yeah, well, so Keys, Edward Lawrence Keyes was the, the person in the late 1880s, early 1890s, who really said, um, okay, we do need some sort of specialty for men's reproduction, and gathered together a group of about um, 15 people, you know, half of them were genitourinary surgeons, to sort of use one of the locutions of the time. The other half were uh, dermatologists who special or people who specialized in syphilis. Um, syphilologists uh, was a word that I did not know before doing this research. Um, so Keyes is really the one to try to found the American um, Society for Andrology and uh, or the American Association um, for Andrology and syphilology. And they're the ones who sort of, you know, they, they bump up against, you can see it in the pages of medical journals at the time, they bump up against, you know, just ridicule for the idea that the men's reproductive bodies should be a specialty, um, that it was, you know, it, the kind of focus on um, venereal disease at the time was mostly in the province of what were called quacks. And so they were really trying to bring respectability to a set of diseases um, that was very difficult to bring respectability to given the cultural constraints of the time. So Keyes 
basically gives up. Um, they rename themselves uh, the American Association of Genitourinary Surgeons, which still does exist to this day. Um, but there was a significant, about 10 or 15 years later in the early 1900s, there was an emergence of a new area called urology. Um, and you get urologists because they say of the genitourinary surgeons, we really want to cut out the genito. We just want to focus on the urinary tract that is respectable. We don't want people coming to our annual meetings talking about venereal disease. Um, so there's you know, a very concerted effort to try to bring respectability to this area. Um, and so urology becomes the specialty. And so I argue in the book that this was actually a missed opportunity, right? If we had had a, a full, cohesive, organized specialty around men's reproductive bodies, starting in the late 19th century, building to the present, um, I think that reproductive health today would look very different, right? You would have meetings and journals and people collaborating and the accumulation of knowledge. And without the infrastructure provided by a medical specialty, we don't get any of that. So all the way through the 20th century, OB and GYN, which eventually form a united specialty in the 1930s, OBGYN, you know, they have clinics and they have uh, journals and they have meetings. And um, so there's the accretion of knowledge about reproduction that becomes associated with women's bodies. And the lack of knowledge about men's reproductive bodies, that sort of that feedback loop of um, non-attention, of non-knowledge about men's reproduction is something that we are living with to the present day. And then later into the... Um later into the 1960s, Warren, Warren uh, O. Nelson and Jeremy Sherman uh, jumped into the scene uh, talking about sperm and, and, uh, uh, and Nelson's role was sort of freezing and, and unfreezing, storing sperm for later use and, and that technology. But was that still sort of, uh, I guess, a failure to the science focusing only on sperm? Well, it's interesting. So yeah, in the, in the 1960s, you get another sort of group of people who come together. And these were both physicians uh, and also scientists, including some whose research was on animals and not on humans, yeah. um, that this group of folks come together and they say, oh, you know, we really need a parallel specialty to GYN, gynecology, um, and let's call it andrology. So you get another attempt about 80 years later to form a specialty area around andrology. Um, and they had no idea that they were not the first people to think of this and not the first people to use that same term. Um, they actually, you know, a couple of decades, you know, in the 1980s, they find some of those early editorials that the first andrologists have written. And they said, oh, well, you know, they, you could almost reprint these today because it's still so relevant. Um, but the second attempt uh, to form a specialty called andrology in the 1960s does lift off, right? So there is some um, success that they have. There is an International Society of Andrology. There's an American Society of Andrology now. Um, and that is in part, I, you know, I argue in the book in more depth that in part that's because uh, in the 1960s and 70s, you have all these different social movements around women's rights and patients' rights and men's rights. So I think those social movements coalesce in such a way that it becomes 
unthinkable for there to be a medical specialty for men's reproductive bodies um, in a way that was just not possible at the end of the 19th century. So this is sort of a classic comparative historical sociology um, you know, question of why does andrology fail in the 1890s and succeed at least a little bit in the 1960s? And I think, again, that's, that's where we can look to sort of the social context, um, the historical context of the 1960s and 70s. Now, even as I say that, it, like andrology does now exist. Um, most people in the United States, at least, have never heard of it. Um, it's a very small specialty. There's, you know, maybe 600 andrologists who belong to the American Society of Andrology, and typically they work in sperm banks, so they are focused in on sperm. Um, they don't have this sort of broad purview that OBGYN has, and so that's where, yeah, to say, well, if we were really going to think about the various kinds of elements of what makes up men's reproductive health. Sperm is a part of it, but it certainly is not the whole of it. Yes, which is uh, um, where maybe in the late 1960s, there was uh, more of a focus on thing beyond, things beyond the sperm and venereal disease and, uh, and even impotence, but instead looking at the effects of alcohol and other, um, uh, other things that have implications for um, health, the health of a, of an, of a, of a child. Right, right, exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, men's reproductive health, if you, if you go look on the NIH website, the National Institutes of Health website, you know, men's reproductive health typically gets defined as um, male fertility or male infertility, um, erectile dysfunction, which is our updated language for impotence, um, and then male contraception and STDs, sexually transmitted diseases or sexually transmitted infections. Um, and that's, you know, those sort of areas of research on men's reproductive health, they exist, you know, there is some attention to them. Anytime that you compare those to women's reproductive health, they're getting less attention, but they, they are there. The thing that I do in the middle of the book was I got really fascinated by this sort of newer area of research called that, you know, kind of goes under the umbrella label of paternal effects. And this is an area of research in which um, the... It, the sperm is understood, you know, so you can kind of think of sperm as like the fertility of sperm is one aspect of it, right? Can a sperm be involved in uh, conceiving a pregnancy? But what paternal effects does is a little bit different. So they say, okay, well, if a sperm, uh, not only can a sperm fertilize an egg, but is that sperm healthy or is there sperm damage, um, damage to the genetic material inside sperm such that uh, it will affect the offspring's health, the child's health. Um, so what's new in this in this re, in this sort of what's new in the realm of men's reproductive health is really an understanding that men's own age and their own bodily health and their toxic exposures prior to conception can actually affect the health of their children. And that is news to most people. Um, and it's something that, you know, really for me started me down um, this path and thinking about this book of how, why is that new? Why did it take a hundred years of asking every possible question about women's age and women's behaviors and women's exposures to even pose this question about men's health? Um, so I think the paternal effect, you know, sort of focusing in on the question of paternal effects and how much damage can there be before uh, it affects children's health? Um, what kinds of exposures should men be worried about? Um, in that area, there is very, very strong evidence that paternal age 
is a factor in uh, diagnoses for children like autism and even later onset diseases like schizophrenia. Um, and so this is something that I think is a really important uh, public health matter. It's important to bring men's attention to it. Um, but as a historic, you know, a sociologist who was looking at this historically, I also just wondered, you know, why didn't we know this before? This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. And, and the I guess maybe the quick and dirty answer to this would be that uh, science was messy and um, at, in earlier ages it was focused on female gynecology and free, female uh, reproductive uh, health and not so much on men's health as it is um, today, uh, I guess with its early emergence in the 1800s, but uh, with its greatest, greatest success in the 1960s, in, the, in America at least. Well, I think, you know, I think the, the answer that I develop in the book is really to offer um, a theoretically informed way of thinking about that question, you know, to say, why is it that we know so little about paternal effects in general and men's reproductive health, uh, or sorry, paternal effects in particular in men's reproductive health more broadly. And the, the answer that I came to is actually really um, inspired by photography. Uh, so what I argue is that, yes, over the course of the past century and a half, uh, that we developed, and by we I mean, uh, you know, people in American society and physicians yes. and scientists, that we developed a way of thinking about reproduction that was so deeply associated with women's bodies that it trains our attention to look, when we, when we think to pose questions about reproduction, we look to women. Um, and that's true in medical research. That's true in social scientific research, right? Social scientists do all kinds of research on reproduction. Um, and they're typically asking women about their experiences of birth or contraception or infertility. So we social scientists do this as well, right? So it's trained our attention to look at women and to answer questions about reproduction through women's bodies and through women's experiences. And so it's the lack of attention, right? The, the male figure in these questions just remains blurry. Uh, we don't ask questions about men. We don't, when we think reproduction, we don't think men's bodies. And so that's really, I mean, one of my goals for this book really is to try to change our ways of thinking about reproduction such that we consider how men matter for reproductive outcomes. Yes, and then in the interviews that you were, um, I, I believe that you had conducted with uh, the men, one of the things that uh, was interesting is about how many of the men said that uh, that yes, they would be focused on uh, on their health for the well being of uh, of the birth of a child. Could you talk a bit more about some of the responses that these men had? Sure. Yeah. So in the last part of the book, you know, I, I sort of after kind of developing an argument about the history of why we pay so little attention and then going to look at some of the recent science around paternal effects and learning that 
that is very little, you know, now that some knowledge is being produced about paternal effects, um, it's still not necessarily being covered widely in the newspapers. There's no public health campaigns about healthy sperm. Um, I really wondered about the general public, right? How does the average man think about reproduction? And like I said, because social scientists don't ask men questions about reproduction very much, I had to go do interviews. Um, and the thing that I was really interested in learning was, first of all, how do men think about their role in reproduction? How do they define it? Right. So just some basic empirical questions about uh, about how they think about this realm. Um, and then how do men respond to learning some of this new information about paternal effects, about how their age and their health um, and their exposures might affect their sperm and affect their children's health. And so I was, you know, trying to think about how do you recruit, you know, because usually in qualitative interview studies, you're looking for a pretty specific population of people, right? Like earlier on, I was interviewing sperm donors or genetic counselors or whatever, you know, but I wanted to interview average men from the general population. And so I was walking around um, the town where I live and I was trying to think about like, well, how do I go find average guys? Like, do I just talk to people on the street, you know, so it was sort of an interesting methodological problem about how to find average men, quote unquote. Um, but what I ended up doing was because this is one of the first interview studies to uh, inquire of men from the general population about how they think about reproduction, I decided to just try to recruit men from as many different backgrounds as possible in order to find whatever variation might be out there in terms of how people think about uh, reproduction. And so my target number was I wanted to interview 40 men, um, and this is what I ended up doing. I recruited half of them were younger, so 18 to 30. Half of them were older, 30 to 49. Everybody was of reproductive age. Half of them were white. Half of them were men of color. Half were fathers. Half were not. Um, and then within that, I just tried to get people from as many different sort of socioeconomic uh, backgrounds and different life experiences as possible. So after recruiting these very, you know, very diverse sample of men, I was very surprised that, they, you know, they sort of stumbled around. You know, if you say, like, how would you define a man's role in reproduction? Like, I have no idea how I would answer that. I didn't know what people were going to say. Um, they end up giving very similar answers, despite the fact that they come from these very different backgrounds, these very different lives. Um, most men ended up defining a man's role in reproduction as providing sperm, um, having sex, and then being a dad, right? So this sort of tripartite way of understanding that. Um, and I thought that was interesting because I, I did not expect people to talk about having sex as being part of reproduction, but it sort of makes sense. I mean, that's how men are involved, bodily speaking, in the process of reproduction. Um, but it made me wonder, well, how would women define their role in reproduction? Would women say, well, providing an egg or having sex? So then I had to go out and uh, recruit 15 women from the general community using these same methods um, and ask them how they define a woman's role in reproduction, how they define a man's role in reproduction. And in fact, women don't define their role in reproduction as providing eggs or having sex. They define it in terms of pregnancy or birth. Um, so it seems sort of obvious, but I think it's important to sort of parse out the ways that people feel bodily connected to the process of reproduction um, and the ways that they don't, right? So this, this was men's sort of understanding of their role. Um, and then, of course, I went, you know, full in on kind of how they think about sperm and, and happy to talk about that if, if, if you want to keep going with sort of what I found from talking about the men. 
Um, no, I also think in addition to the uh, to the interviews, what was quite interesting is your content analysis, looking at uh, at magazines as well and seeing how um, how re- male reproduction reproduction and men's health is is published in the literature. Uh, maybe that might be a good place to um, extend and talk a little bit more about that that area of the research. Yeah, yeah. Well, and it was interesting because in interviewing men about how they think about reproduction many of them said that they don't think about it very much at all. And in part, that's because, you, you know, like you said, they're not reading newspaper articles. They're not seeing these magazine pieces. Um, a lot of men, for them, the last time they heard anything about their own reproductive system was in high school, right, in a sex ed class or a health class. Um, and so that's where, you know, in the middle of the book, the sort of content analysis, I went and looked at 50 years of New York Times articles about sperm. I looked at um, consumer websites like the Mayo Clinic and WebMD and what to expect when you're expecting. Sort of, I went looking for where, you know, if men kind of Googled men's reproductive health or sperm or what, you know, what would they find out in the world? And the answer is that they would not find a whole lot. And what they would find was typically focused on male fertility. So the question of, okay, well, if you're a very heavy drinker or a very heavy smoker, what does that do to sperm count? or sperm motility, or sperm shape, technically morphology. Um, so there's, there is information out there about sort of the effects of men's exposures on their sperm, but it doesn't take that next step to say, okay, well, the damage that those things are doing to the sperm cells um, might also be causing damage to the genetic material inside of it. So that if a sperm does fertilize an egg, it, it is still fertile, but it might be carrying this sort of genetic damage that might have these negative effects for children. Excellent. And what sort of implications do you think that uh, the lack of male reproductive health literature, the lack of knowledge in it um, still yet today, although more than uh, yesteryear, has on the overall um, perception of what it means to be a father in the United States of America. Do you think that it has any impact on that? Yeah, you know, I think the the lack of attention to men's reproductive health, the lack of biomedical knowledge, the lack of public health campaigns, I think this has implications for a lot of different things. I think it has implications for gender norms, um, for reproductive health care, for reproductive politics. Um, So in the conclusion of the book, I sort of break it out into a couple of different audiences that I want to speak to. So I want to speak to individuals who are, you know, thinking about having children or, um, you know, perhaps might have children in the future. How should they think about uh, what role a man's bodily health might play in reproductive outcomes, right? So there's sort of a basic educational component that I think more people ought to know um, about how men's health might affect, you know, their children's health. So that's, that's sort of at the most basic level. Then I also want to speak to reproductive healthcare providers. Um, so, you know, people who are providing uh, all kinds of reproductive healthcare, providing reproductive advice to start thinking not only about women's health and women's bodies, but to include men in that conversation in such a way that we start to think about how men's health matters, right? And to provide that kind of education and to provide that kind of healthcare. 
Um, and then, you know, in a sort of broader social context sort of way, I also think we should not kind of replicate the problematic approaches we take with women's reproductive health messages. So the way that we now kind of deal with reproductive health is we say to individual women, make sure you individual person are healthy, by which we mean eat right and exercise, get access to prenatal care, um, et cetera, et cetera, you know, buy the right products so you don't consume chemicals. So it's a very individualized model of how to achieve reproductive health. And then when people can't because they don't have the economic resources or they don't have access to good health care or whatever, um, then the, the tendency is to blame and stigmatize people. So in expanding our notion of reproductive health to men, I think it also offers us an opportunity to think anew about what kinds of messages we send about how people can be healthy. And I think, you know, the the current moment in which there is a raging pandemic and huge inequalities by race and economic class and geography, um, that COVID-19 is making this even more painfully clear than it already was, that we cannot think about health as solely an individual matter. We need to make structural investments in people's health. We need to do a much better job of regulating environmental toxins um, for people's health. And those kinds of steps would benefit every body, right? They would benefit all people, whether or not they're having children or not. Um, so I think to sort of really also pivot from thinking about men's reproductive health as this simple individual matter where you give a little bit of education and people change their behavior, um, I think that we really need to be thinking about health in much more structural and environmental ways than we currently are um, as a society in the U.S. I, this is a, a bit of a, of a term, but maybe you touched on it slightly, and I know that I missed this earlier on, but uh, uh, you're talking about some of the environmental factors and some of the in, um deep inequalities that still exist in health. Uh, but there there was an earlier time in andrology uh, as well as gynecology where it was a, a dark side of the health sciences uh, of reproductive health and how it was used to justify sterilization of women, racial minorities, and the imprisoned, as well as uh, how it was even used um, in terms of castration of minority and imprisoned men and to justify the incarceration of women uh, during their pregnancies. Could you talk maybe a little bit more about that, that darker history? Yeah, well, and it's frankly, it's not history. I mean, just last week, uh, we saw that the um, Immigrations and Customs Enforcement, ICE, was actually uh, sterilizing un women migrants without their consent. Um, so this is it's a long-standing history of reproductive abuses, um, particularly of people of color and poor people. And so that's, you know, it's partly because I am familiar with that history that I think it's ever more important as we sort of do think about the future of reproductive health and reproductive health approaches in America, that we take into account these deep, deep inequalities by race and by class, and that we work to improve the health of people without stigmatizing them without sort of using these punitive measures. Um, and so, yeah, that, that, you know, and it's, it's, uh, it's um, shocking. It's both shocking and not shocking to sort of see these headlines about ICE and the sterilization of immigrant women. Um, 
but it's it just only further underscores the importance of attending to these um, tendencies in our society, which um, are only being inflamed by the current administration. Um, so, you know, what I'm calling for in the conclusion of the book is kind of a wholesale rethinking of health uh, alongside, which would necessitate a whole scale rethinking of our society. But I think we're sort of uh, ripe for that um, at this current moment. Yes, and I think, and I think that uh, it, it's an interconnected issue. It's not just reproductive health and medicine as an isolated issue, separate from economic class or sociogeographic um implications that are had from living in certain areas of the United States that have uh, infrastructure that is starting to crumble, like Flint, Michigan, and the lead that was found in the water, right? Looking at all of these different issues that have implications on reproductive health and human health in general. Right, yeah. Well, and the other the other part of the history, I guess, that I would pull in here as a thread is um, the ways that particular nations at particular times sort of set their sights on controlling people's reproduction to ver- to further the goals of the nation. Um, so a classic example of this is Nicolae Ceausescu in Romania in the 1960s, who you know came to power and one of his first decrees was to ban abortion and ban contraception because he needed women having babies to make the future workers of this socialist society. Um, and so the idea that you sort of solve social problems through controlling historically women's reproduction, but there are examples of controlling men's reproduction, um, that's another part of the history that I think it's really important to be aware of. And so anytime you have any sort of government involvement in reproduction, I think as sociologists and historians, we have to sort of sit up and pay extra close attention um, because there is always this uh, propensity for abuse. Um, And so that's where, you know, to really think about this in terms of public health and to think about ways that can empower people to be healthy and to make it possible for them to be healthy without in any way trying to control them or stigmatize them. Thank you uh, very much for for this great interview and, and, and for going over this book in, in greater detail than, uh, than maybe what could be provided on the, on the inside cover of the book. So, um, this is the end of our interview, but uh, we have time for, for one more question. Sure. What are you working on now? Well, now, so the book came out, I'm just looking at my calendar, but the book came out about five weeks ago. <laughs> and so I'm taking a small break. Um, uh, but the, the sort of next thing on my plate is that I do have a number of different pieces that I would like to write that are associated with the arguments I make in the book. Um, So there's a commentary that I would like to publish in a fertility medicine journal. Um, I'd like to figure out how to reach high school teachers and encourage them to include some of this information about men's reproductive health in the high school curriculum. Um, There's a piece I would like to write for reproductive health care providers. So I'm sort of, you know, now starting to spin off pieces and try to reach other audiences who wouldn't necessarily pick up, you know, an academic book about this topic, but that I think have, um, you know, that there's insights that might be useful for them. So, so that's what's next on my plate. <laughs> yeah. Other things that I think about is uh, reproductive health deserts with, uh, with medicine be- mm-hmm. leaving remote areas where, um, where certain populations don't have populations in these, in these college, ro- very rural areas, desolate areas don't have access to it or looking at, uh, 
um, reproductive health during a time of a pandemic, all of this stuff, there's plenty of directions to go uh, from this research. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you again for your time. This has been an episode of New Books and Sociology, a channel on New Books Network. I look forward to talking to you again in the near future, uh, Dr. Emily. All right. Thank you so much for having me.